Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shift, a podcast about mobility. My name is Pete Bigelow. I'm your host and reporter at the Automotive News. You may have caught the news a few weeks back when Tesla slashed the prices of its electric vehicles across the board, and then Ford followed suit by cutting the price of the Mach-E by thousands of dollars. It got me thinking about the affordability of electric vehicles. That upfront costs, even with those reductions, is still a barrier to a lot of potential customers. And we've talked about the bits and pieces of that before on the podcast, but we've not yet covered the financing of vehicles themselves. To be honest, I've never really considered the question of whether EVs should be financed in a fundamentally different way than their conventional counterparts. But Alex Legal, who's my guest today on the podcast, say they absolutely should be considered different. Uh, he's the founder and CEO of Tenet, a startup at the crossroads of finance and climate tech. And it's providing a new roadmap for lending based on the premise that EVs better retain their value over time. Alex is going to tell us about that and more today. So let's get right to it. I'm pleased to bring you this conversation with Tenet founder and CEO, Alex Legal. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, hey, I want to kick this off by asking you about a, a tweet that you uh, put forth the other day, which I thought was really interesting and kind of contrarian to what, what many of us might uh, think. Uh, but you wrote that the most important goal for civilization is to enable increasing energy consumption. Uh, which is really interesting, uh, you know, compared to, like I said, my first thought would be, oh, we, we should be reducing gasoline uh, consumption. But uh, but just kick, kick this off by explaining that. What did you what did you mean by that? Well, so I think in general. Socioeconomic wealth correlates one to one with how much energy can you consume? And if you trace anthropologically civilization, then just. And by the way, one of my favorite author, authors, for example, is Vaclav Smil, who's just written a ton about this. Big sort of like, you know, Bill Gates, for example, like um, raves about him too. So I highly recommend um, his writings. Is around, well, really the jewel is sort of the numerator of the universe, right? And effectively, the more energy that we can consume and the more sort of power that we can produce out of it, ultimately, the better off we are. But the important thing to do is enable that in a sustainable way, right? Ultimately, of course, right? If we pollute our planet to death, then energy consumption doesn't really do us any, any well. So we have to facilitate, for example, nuclear advances and so forth, where we can produce and consume electricity and power energy in abundance at a cost that is cheap. And that just really helps civilization evolve further. The thing that I thought was interesting about the uh, the statistics you cited, which came from the International Energy Agency, um, was it kind of gets to this key question of, can we make this energy transition without having a, a big seismic shock uh, to the economy? So the reality is that by definition, that won't be able to happen because there's too many competing interests right? and any changes cannot happen in a binary type of way it will always be gradual and that is even on a political level right if you look at the us or any other type of organization everything's based on checks and balances so you cannot just have one binary outcome and that just forever changes the way things are and then also technological progress while it's lumpy still over long enough time period happens you know relatively linearly so 
what that means is for the energy transition, you're only now seeing what is a concerted effort from different parties striving towards a single goal that wasn't the case previously, where things weren't aligned in a single direction. So only now are we seeing technological, economic, and scientific advances towards how do we unlock more abundant, sustainable, cheap energy production that allows for higher consumption, which fulfills economic and social needs, but also enables an energy transition, right? And so that means how do we more effectively take advantage of solar power, grid and battery storage, right? It's really only now sort of exploding in terms of um, the uh, innovation and, and development cycles. How do we develop safe nuclear power that really powers um, large energy consumption and so forth? Ultimately, and obviously I'm biased, um, my betting is on we'll be able to make it work um, technologically and economically to proceed with that energy transition, which obviously requires multi-state, multi-actor coordination in real time. And I think only now people are actually sort of converging on that mindset. And the allocation of resources, if that's time, money, um, and anything else towards um, achieving that energy, energy transition in a way that's just sensible and, 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 and ultimately not sort of detrimental or counterproductive. So I've backed into this a little bit, Alex, but uh, maybe that's a good segue into asking you uh, to tell us about your startup and, and what your particular slice of this energy transition is. Yeah. So throughout my career of doing startups, I think I've been able to get some orthogonal insights into what's going on in energy and climate and observing this big global macro event, which is the energy transition. And equally understanding that legacy financial systems were not built to take advantage of its unique opportunities. And the way that we categorize them at Tenet is there's unprecedented government tailwinds. All of a sudden you have, you know, an $800 billion inflation reduction act. And it's basically this type of Sudoku puzzle that people have to figure out in terms of how do you access actually sort of the dollar value and you have to build product and technology and processes around helping the end customer take opportunity of that dollar value and actually improve the affordability of the renewable energy product that um, that tax credit belongs to. And then the second bucket that we think about is how do those new products create and generate new engagement and new data, which unbundle the legacy landscape. So EVs are interesting, right? Because they are batteries and computers on wheels. They're not just a car, but they have data that pertains to energy consumption, charging behavior, anything that's native to energy. But they also have a discovery and ordering and purchase process that increasingly skews to a digital environment. Dealers and whatnot will never go away. They're too entrenched. But an increasingly proportion of the market will shift towards an online environment. And then thirdly is financial markets and capital markets that now need economically attractive decarbonizing investments. So they still need to make money deploying their capital. They're not going to just, for an appeal to ethics, give it away for free. 
but they need the positive externality of how does that achieve their decarbonization goal, given this one-way street from a political, regulatory, and just simply investment mandate perspective towards climate. And so the way that we think of ourselves at Tenet is how do we build the financial fabric that really aligns the incentives of three different stakeholders, which would be the end customer, and that could be consumers or commercial. How do we uh, align that with business partners? And in our case, that would be mobility platforms and dealers and software providers and car marketplaces and OEMs. And then lastly, financial institutions like credit unions and banks and ESG asset managers that actually want to own and get access to in a scalable fashion to these attractive um, climate investments. And so for us, we, we really want to be the unifying financial infrastructure that helps ultimately save money, reducing your carbon footprint. And we do it in a way where we build something that is useful for the end customer and we distribute it more effectively because we let other platforms embed our fabric, our tenant platform to better cater towards their needs and effectively accelerating their highest growth segment, which is EVs. And then lastly, financial institutions that come to us because of the quality of the yield and the economic performance, but also because they know if they invest in these portfolios, starting with EVs and now also other types of renewable energy products, they actually reduce their scope three financed emissions as a function of doing so. So effectively for us, we're just tapping into a large, fast growing market where really the needs of different stakeholders are constantly evolving. And we can take the position of, of being the index, of, of being hopefully the centralizing platform that they just come to and trust and that ultimately makes um, their lives and jobs easier. How long ago did you start Tenet and how quickly have you seen the the landscape uh, kind of continue to shift to to favorable business outcomes for yourself? So we started the company in March 2021. And that's not a long time ago. It's, you know, less than two years. However, the funny thing about climate tech is it's really only a thing since like two or three years ago. And I was lucky that I worked in something that's adjacent to energy before. I built high-performance computing data centers in Texas that stabilize energy grids, um, performing demand response, virtual power plants, and other types of auxiliary services. And ultimately, because of that, got a little bit of an early start into what people are experiencing now. And I think ultimately, just the industry itself for EVs in particular has just been exploding. Right? It's actually just blowing out of the water any of the predictions just from a year or two ago where the adoption rate is just constantly pulled forward um, in terms of you know 10%, 20%, 50% market adoption. Um, and that has certainly been one of the more surprising things where you really realize that unprecedented government action like the IRA really just creates financial incentives where all of a sudden entrepreneurs and businesses and individuals come together to unlock that value. And that ultimately then spurs even greater market growth and deepening. So that has been interesting. And then the other aspect has been the interconnection between EVs and chargers, battery storage, solar, all these other heat pumps, all these other types of energy products where somebody starts a sustainability journey with their car 
but then they effectively get hooked on, hey, I can save money while also reducing my carbon footprint. It's a win-win situation. And they get interested in what are other ways that I can do that for my house or for my business. And that is effectively a type of feeling or just a, a type of um, community that you can really lean into and grow. And it feels, and that's purely anecdotal, like something that has only really taken shape over the last year or two where only now people are aware that this thing is actually possible before it was, okay, you bought like a Tesla Roadster or you got a solar rooftop 10 years ago. You did it because you wanted to save the trees, right? It was this, this appeal to ethics and there were, you were paying a premium even for that. There wasn't any economic rationale, but the majority of people is now waking up to the fact that they can save money electrifying their life. And that is just really compelling and something that, probably a lot of the projections about market growth underestimated. Does tenant help people connect with the financing for those adjacent things like chargers, like uh, retrofitting a house with whatever electrical needs are for, for charging an EV heat pumps, et cetera. Yeah. So we do work with multiple home installation platforms and we do also now in a beta allow customers that get an EV to bundle charger financing into their loan, but even more importantly, also the installation aspect. Anybody can increase the loan value by the charger cost. What is actually important is how do you get the thing installed in your house? How do you deal with permitting? How do you relay the information that's necessary for an electrician to come to your house and pick the right thing? and creating one simple unified UX around that experience. And that's what we do. And we do already partner in a sort of more low lift fashion with different solar installers, heat pump installers, um, battery installers and so forth. But ultimately our mission is as we acquire these EV customers, we wanna give them positive reinforcement that you've made this good decision. You've bought a vehicle that does good for your wallet and for the planet, but now we can show you insights on how are you achieving your dollar and CO2 savings by driving your car and gamifying that experience where you see on a weekly basis, this is how much I drove, this is how I compare to, let's say an equivalent, I don't know, Audi A4, for example, if you drive like a Tesla Model 3 and this is how much dollars and CO2 I'm saving vis-a-vis -vis the gas car comparison. And then you can actually equally see how much more could I save if I add battery storage to my charger or a solar panel to my rooftop or any other type of renewable energy home upgrade where you have this architectural expansion because the common denominators stay the same. It's dollar and CO2 savings and people want to understand the impact that they're driving. Alex, on the EV front, you've talked about saving car owners a substantial amount of money uh, from a traditional loan on a monthly basis. How much are we talking? So on a monthly basis, $150, $200 or more. That's a significant amount of money. Like how are you able to how are you able to knock off so much off off the monthly payment? Yeah. So there's broadly speaking three things that we lever about EVs that are unique to EVs. 
The first is tax credits and grants. We have seen, for example, since Tesla started cutting their prices, a tripling in our organic volume the next day, because all of a sudden so many more people became aware of, hey, I'm eligible for tax credits and I don't want them 12 months after I buy my car, I want to be able to take advantage of it at the point of purchase. And we allow people to unlock the dollar value of those tax credits and use it effectively as a deferral on their loan that reduces the amount that they actually pay on a monthly basis on. The second thing that we look at is we as a company have proprietary data on EV residual value over time. One, because of work that we've done before, but two, also because for those that track their dollar and CO2 savings, Tenet receives insights on how is the battery depreciating? How much charging are you doing? And so forth. Typically, a bank has no insight into what happens with the car after the point of funding. Well, Fargo goes to you and says, Pete, here you go. Here's your loan. Good luck. We're only going to find out what happens to the car if you wrap it around a tree or you pay it off or you defraud us. It, that's it. But for us, EVs are this new asset class where everybody's on equal footing. Market adoption is only happening now. So we actually have a first mover advantage of building data infrastructure to capture how does the collateral perform after the point of funding and leveraging that into tighter underwriting for the end customer. And the third thing is we work with different climate mission aligned financial institutions that offer superior pricing for attractive climate investments. And we can turn that into lower APRs for the end customer. I'm curious about the depreciation over time. The battery seems to be well, maybe what you're telling me is I've always thought as the battery is the giant question mark and you don't know how it's going to react over time after thousands of, of charges. But you're telling me you've got data so you know for sure for better or worse. Well, I mean, we do not know for sure ever. Everything's probabilistic. Um, that being said, you can even see nowadays, right? Just an openly available data, Kelly Black book, EV secondhand prices are more stable than equivalent gas car prices. So there's already some incremental sort of public information um, sort of incrementally de-risking that uh, premise. But for us, it was around, well, these EVs are going to last longer. A typical auto loan is six years. How do we keep something that is similar, but that also accommodates for the fact that this car probably lasts 14 years or 15 years? And a typical auto loan, uh, auto car in, in general is estimated at six to seven year lifetime. So how do we represent that in a way that makes sense for the end borrower that doesn't confuse or or seem too different, right? At the end of the day, we don't want to create something where people are just naturally skeptical because it is too different from what they're used to, but that also still helps them unlock that li higher lifetime value of the vehicle and represents that in a way that actually saves the money on a monthly basis. Who are tenants, partners? What financing institutions and lenders are you working with? Yeah, so we work with different credit unions, um, banks, asset managers, and um, government green banks, actually, doing first-of-its-kind EV facilities with them, which I'm particularly proud of. 
Um, and um, that also just comes from sort of this unified government effort towards making more sustainable investments and ultimately working with companies like Tenet to make that happen. We're going to take a short break from my conversation with Alex for a word from our friends at Slate. When we return, we're going to talk about the impact of the tax credits that are part of the Inflation Reduction Act on EV purchase prices and how that factors into the whole electric vehicle transition. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Lizzie O'Leary, host of Slate's What Next TBD, a clear-eyed look at technology, power, and the future. From fake news to fake meat, algorithms to augmented reality, we'll guide you through the rapid technological changes that are reshaping our world. Those changes aren't always visible, and they aren't always what they appear to be. That's where TBD comes in. With the help of expert guests, we'll help you parse out what matters, what doesn't, and what's next. Subscribe to What Next TBD in your favorite podcast app. Now back to my conversation with Tenet founder and CEO, Alex Legal. You know, when you mentioned that figure of $150 to $200 monthly savings before, I'm curious about, does that unlock a, a wider market for people who otherwise would not have been able to afford an EV? And is there any any numbers behind, you know, what percentage of people might now be able to get in a car that they previously couldn't because of that savings? Yeah, the number one hurdle to adoption is affordability. And the number one thing that people care about with cars and auto loans is their monthly payment because it is something that is non-discretionary that gets them to work, right? It's something that impacts their day-to-day life. So they think about it in terms of what does it cost me every month to drive this car? And the problem is that EVs are just too expensive. We want to be able to levelize the costs of an EV or make it even cheaper than an equivalent gas car to get somebody to drive an EV rather than a gas car. Because maybe they pick out the EV and they say, well, this is amazing, but it's too expensive. And even though I'd love to drive it, I'm just going to have to stick with the gas car because, well, that's just better for my bottom line. And if we're able to make the EV more affordable, we just unlock a deeper market by making it more affordable to more people and drive the expansion of market growth that way. In terms of numbers, ultimately EV started as a luxury good, right? You have a top-down adoption where you had very wealthy people pay a very large premium for Tesla Roadster 10 years ago. And ultimately still, the distribution skews towards higher earning, um, prime, super prime, bi-coastal, and so forth. But now with this lower pricing, both from the OEM side and through financing through entities like us, we can just address the actual majority of people that is now only considering making the switch, right? Especially even through stuff like $7 gasoline prices and stuff like that happening over the past, right? That's just a year ago, right? It's actually pretty, pretty recent. So there's this different level of awareness where more and more people just have been contemplating making the switch and looking for the right opportunities to do so. And that's where we slot in. We just want to be helping more people make it easy to save money driving your EV. And well, so far, you know, I think we were doing a good job. Have customers moved away from 
considering that monthly payment as like the primary focus and thought about the total cost of ownership more, or are we still very much, uh, you know, fixated on, on monthly payments? So, and that's some of the work that we're doing internally is how do we represent it to customers in a more exhaustive end-to-end way when it comes to your total cost of ownership and showing that you're going to save this much over this period of time when comparing it with alternatives. The reality is that right now people focus on the monthly, right? They look at it from what is this going to cost me to finance and own this thing? But then either as a tenant customer, we have the relationship with that customer and we can show them we are your trusted climate financing platform and here are additional ways to save and we're going to make it stupid easy for you to do so. Or if they're not, at least we're still going to be helpful to reach people as a knowledge base and help them educate and be part of the community of people that does want to lean into that more heavily. So in either case, we just try and make a difference. But for those that are customers, we're looking to continually innovate on how can we create this end-to-end total cost of ownership experience and let you benefit from that straight away. Not this delayed gratification of, okay, in three years time, I will have saved more money than driving an EV uh, from a gas car. But ultimately, how do I actually pull that forward to today and take advantage of that? And that's a gradual process, right? That's really... Um, where we have to align the incentives between the end customer, our business partners, our financial institution partners. And as we get more and more economies of scale, we'll be able to facilitate that better and better. We're talking about affordability. It's worth noting that in recent weeks, we've seen Tesla slash prices, uh, Ford followed by cutting the cost of the Mach-E by an average of $4,500. Uh What's driving the price cuts and how are they contributing to this uh, affordability problem you're trying to solve? I, so I think it's very good for tenant, actually. Um, obviously, I'm biased, but the reality is that Tesla dominated the market with 70, 80% or more market share. And in such a basically monopolistic industry, the monopoly has pricing power. Right? And they can just extract a lot more profit per vehicle than what is now a much more evenly distributed industry where any OEM is going electric and everybody is making it the number one priority to sell more electric vehicles. And the natural variable to play around with and optimize for is pricing. So what we're seeing right now is just an increase in commoditization of OEMs where if we do our job right, the value accrues with the financial rails, with the picks and shovels like tenant. And um, we'll just be able to ultimately help facilitate the transaction where any customer who wants an EV can get it in the cheapest way possible through us. As much as for financial institutions, we connect the highest quality of climate investments with the lowest cost financial institutions. Just this week, I noticed that Tesla had some modest increases in prices uh, you know, across its various models. And it was the fourth time this year that they've adjusted prices one way or the other. Uh, what's behind the, 
you know, these highly variable prices and are, are customers adjusting this more dynamic pricing model? Does it affect uh, the services you're providing in any way? So it doesn't affect us um, because we really just are a facilitator at the end of the day. We're a network that connects the various stakeholders and ultimately we just flow the cars and the value economically and and whatnot through our connections. It is interesting to your point to observe this sort of higher frequency of price adjustments. That's certainly unprecedented. And it just also speaks to right the fact that the entire purchase process is more online. Ultimately, this wouldn't be as prevalent or even possible if we would live in a world where all cars are sold through dealerships, because ultimately that that sort of information processing doesn't happen, right? There's too much latency in the system in a dealer-only world, but in a world where most of the EVs are shifting towards an e-commerce model of selling them D2C on their OEM websites, you can actually do this more real-time dynamic pricing. So I think ultimately it's just OEMs taking advantage of that and, well, optimizing their economics in real time and seeing what happens. And customers, I think, are just getting more and more used to it. It's just a function of conditioning to this new environment. And probably in a, in a few years from now, people are not going to think twice about it anymore. You walk into a dealership now and it's hard to know uh, what tax credits and rebates might be available for a particular purchase. Does the shift online make it easier to for a consumer to understand that they might be eligible for up to $7,500 in, in credits courtesy of the IRA and then later in these state-specific things on top of that? I think it's still pretty difficult. Ultimately, one of the things that we pride ourselves on is trying to be that educational knowledge hub that people can go to and just learn. What are the tax credits that I'm eligible for? What are the different EV models that make sense for me? How do I think about owning my EV and total cost of ownership? So the reality is at the dealership already, you're going you're gonna to be dealing with dealers that you know, and we work with a lot of dealers that are still really wrapping their head around this whole EV stuff. Needless to say, the whole tax credit situation is just very foreign. And even online, right? If you Google tax credits, you're just going to find so many different sources and so many different websites saying conflicting things. And it's still very opaque. Where again, it's still this Sudoku puzzle effectively where people have to figure out all the different combinations and kind of make the numbers work and then squared away for themselves. So it's still way too complicated. There is no user experience. There's no UX around tax credits and so forth. And that's one of the things that Tenna just continually wants to innovate on is how do we make it as simple as possible just to get or take advantage of these tax credits at the click of a button. Alex, so if I'm putting two and two together here, we've talked about price cuts, we've talked about tax credits, and we were talking about uh, you know achieving some sort of price parity with the average EV with uh, compared to an internal combustion vehicle. Are are we there yet? Do these things uh, you know actually kind of bring us to to parity or or not yet? I think so. Yeah. Um, ultimately, on average, 
it's a long time ago. I forgot what the exact difference is, but on average, the difference in terms of a loan payment between an EV and a gas car is around $150-$200. And so far, it seems like tenants able to make up for that difference and more. As we continually grow the business, we'll just get better and better terms from capital markets. We'll be able to more efficiently integrate with our business partners. We'll be able to add on more financial and climate incentives into the financial product and hopefully just increase that difference even further. So naturally, right now, we're just experiencing a lot of growth, which is amazing to see because we also have to grind really hard to get there. And we still work stupid hard every day um, to make it happen. I'm extremely proud of the team, how we're executing against the roadmap. But reality is like, it's just day one um, and so much more ahead. So I think the traction and the signal from the industry is there. And now we just have to continually lean in aggressively to really drive it home. How big is the team and, and what's your own funding uh, status right now? Yeah, so we are 30 people, HQ is in New York. I'd say 60% is remote, but we do make an effort to come into the office frequently if you're remote. We really are a in-person type of company and think that that really is what makes progress happen. We raised a little bit over 18 million of seed fund financing since starting the business, have different warehouse line providers, different forward flow agreements different debt facilities in place to be able to handle volume, but also just grow the way that we want to and build products um, and distribute them in, in ways that we think is ultimately best for the customer. You mentioned uh, earlier that you're a serial entrepreneur. Uh, what were you doing before Tenet? So before Tenet, I built, um, and it's a little bit different, but also similar in certain ways. It was one of the larger Bitcoin mining companies in the US and the first one that stabilized energy grids. Um, specifically, I spent a lot of time in Texas before, which uh, is one of the more innovative states when it comes to building out virtual power plants and generally mechanisms to stabilize the grid, right? How do you deal with the fact that Texas is the sixth largest wind energy producer in the world, if it were its own country? You have an increasing skew towards solar so you have a lot of volatile energy supply. So you need flexible energy demand in order to consume more when there's overproduction, but also consume less in the matter of seconds or minutes when there's an under underproduction. So that I think is, is a business that I still think very highly of that unlocks a lot of synergies with utilities and energy companies and grid operators. And then with Tenet, it was more around, how do we build climate fintech? How do we build software that is a wrapper around this whole energy transition thing? Not necessarily touching the hardware itself because there's just complexities associated with the hardware business, but more so something that scales and really drives financial impact for anyone across the country and hopefully globally. Alex, my last question on the podcast is often uh, I asked uh, our guests to recommend a book uh, or, or you know ask them what books are influencing their work. And I, you hit on that a little bit before. So I want to 
loop back to that. Uh, remind us the name of the the author and the books that have been influential for you in in this realm. Yeah, so Vaclav Smil, S M I L, Energy and Civilization is the the number one book that he has. But I recommend all of his books. Um, also, obviously, The Prize by Daniel Jurgen. I love that book, um, as well as the other two um, that followed that. And uh, yeah, I think there's a lot to read just with <laughs> Jurgen's three books as a Pulitzer Prize winner. And then Vaclav Smil, I think, has like 30 plus. So uh, that will keep you busy for some time. That will. I, I just finished uh, the new map from Jurgen. Amazing. And, uh, yeah, it was very good. And to your point, it took a while to uh, to leaf through it and kind of go through various offshoots and uh, sidetracked myself along the way. So very good stuff. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, it's been great having you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. I thought Alex made a really important point that I wanted to underscore about the tax credits, be they federal or state. A lot of customers don't want to wait till after the end of the year to finally get their credit back. So if Alex has devised a way that they could pull it into that upfront purchase price and lower monthly payments, that seems like a powerful lever to pull. Uh, that is our show for this week. If you enjoyed my conversation with Alex and you like the Shift podcast overall, please give us a like or leave us a review at Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again to Alex for being here. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. 